The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. Hello, my name is Kimberly Martin. And you're listening to Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County, a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Opinions expressed on this show are totally mine and do not reflect the opinions of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County and other shows, please go to KUCI.org. Hello. Welcome back, everybody. Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County. This is our third week on the air, and I am Kimberly Martin, your host for this show. And uh, with me in the studio is my ever-important engineer, Heather McCoy. Hello. How are you today? Oh, not bad. How about you? Good. Thank you for being the kind of person that shows up all the time, every time, and on time. Well, in radio, being on time is very important. Well, I mean, being one of those people that's constantly late to things, I'm impressed (laughs) that I've made it on time myself, so thank you. Well, that's always a start. (laughs) It is. It's good. I I was constantly late for things, and then I became a volunteer here, and I've exactly been late to a show once. Oh, And that was because I worked overnight, and the uh, power went out, and so the alarm clock didn't wake me up, and so I was only 30 minutes late, so it was bad. In honor of you, you also hold some pretty heavy hours here at the studio. When somebody Uh doesn't show up for a 2 a.m. show, you show up for that person usually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes me talking and being weird and stuff like that. Probably you're only weird (laughs) in the middle of the night. Not, You've never been weird on my show. Oh. Not yet anyway. I haven't had the opportunity. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Well, anyway, um, we're continuing with a segment in honor of April being the month that holds Earth Day. Earth Day is the 22nd of April. And, you know, I did a little research. It's the 22nd all the way up until 2015. And I wonder what's going to happen after that. Are they going to change the day on us? They've been pretty consistent about holding it on the 22nd of April. And it got its start in 1972. So it's been around for a long time. Yeah. I don't know where I've been all that time. Yeah, you're safe. But um, we have in the studio today some really green gals, and we are continuing our discussion with Jody Levine. She is with Earth Roots, an outdoor learning um, experience for all ages. And you might remember her from last week. We had Jody in the studio discussing her mission for Earth Roots and their upcoming land purchase. And we also discussed some of the wider concepts that she explores with her students and her mentors, like permaculture. So maybe some of those terms are percolating around in your mind, and you might get curious enough to go do a little internet search and see what that's like, how you might fit something like that into your life. And um, so also joining us today is a good friend and a good friend of Jody's as well, Michelle Speaker. She is a parent volunteer at the Journey School in Aliso Viejo. And together, I brought them in because together they brought an eco-literacy program to that local Orange County Charter School. And they're here today to tell us just what an eco-literacy program is. So by the end of the show, I hope you can find out if your eco is as literate as it should be. (laughs) I guess we'll see. (laughs) So say hello, everybody. Hello, and thank you for having us. 
Yeah, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back, Kimberly. I'm so glad. No headache today, so hopefully that'll perk things up for you, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we had a good discussion last time, and we realized that as we we got halfway through the show, we really started to touch on the heavier subjects a little too late in the show, so we might have to explore some of those a little bit more today. And um, in preparation for today's show, I went online to look up what eco-literacy is, and it says it is a framework or a curriculum for the schooling of sustainabilities in our schools and in, commu- in our communities. So I was going to ask you, Jody, if you would start by translating that a little bit for our audience. I would be happy to. So, you know, we live in a world that has a lot of concrete and a lot of asphalt and a lot of indoor spaces. And the opportunities in our modern Orange County to come into contact and be fully aware of what it's like to live with the earth are fewer than they were, you know, even 50 years ago, 20 years ago. Someone who's eco-literate is someone who can walk down a path and understand their place in nature and how everything is connected, and how what we do affects other things, and and hopefully make choices to make with their actions so that everything is improving and getting better, and really taking to heart the interconnectedness between all of life. Wonderful. So what we're doing is is bringing that education for someone like uh, a Bushman, let's say, from Southern Africans, Kalahari Desert, who has their whole life experience living intimately with nature and with the earth, you know, getting that level of knowledge, but in our modern Orange County where we have asphalt and pavement and really bringing nature into the classroom and bringing the kids out of the classroom so that we can interweave that in a beautiful way. That's lovely. Michelle, what does eco-literacy mean for you? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say that educating children today is probably the most important um, part of um, of this process in preparing children for the 21st century. So eco-literacy for me is um, taking the, what Jody was just talking about, the, the relationship and the connection that we have with Earth and all of those pieces um, that are important to potentially learn for children and that they become eventually eco-leaders into our community and putting those into the classroom opportunities to learn. So eco-leadership is about an eco-education um, and literacy is about environmental education and education about sustainability so that students today can be future leaders and really make the difference in the world. So do you work with school boards to kind of get more earth and studies in like textbooks and the curriculum? You know, I am working with a local charter school, but absolutely this this whole dialogue about environmental education is absolutely happening in the, the school board level. It's happening at all levels because there's a conversation about how can we make education today better and how can we help the children learn in deeper ways. So project-based learning, gardening and learning, and what we can do um, at all levels to improve that, that's a active and very, very um, live conversation going on at all board levels. You know, it means that we need to reach our children with these concepts when they're young, right? You've discovered that. But why is that so important? Well, I actually think it's because if you reach children before they change, before their behaviors are in place to oh, some degree. Um, that's one thing that happens. It's it's a natural. Children connect with nature naturally. And honestly, um, we can sometimes get in the way 
and 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 we actually as a society potentially i believe can help them disconnect from nature um but if you start early and you are um supporting this connection with nature and then you continue to support and build on it through the years as the as children grow and they're more age appropriate ready for so maybe they just start in the beginning with taking a nature hike and just rec- respecting the rhythm of nature and the seasons and the hikes and just observation and then they start to plant a seed and you build on that to ultimately by the time they're in an elementary school they're in eighth grade basically they're ready to take on some leadership and really handle deeper conversations it's mm, interesting Jody? you want to add to that jody I do. I'd, I'd like to just add to what Michelle said, that when you start young, there's less barriers with anything. Learning language, connecting with nature, traveling, trying new foods. Um, so I just want to second exactly what Michelle said, that it's so important to start children young with connecting with nature so that when they grow, they, have, they already have developed these threads of connection and appreciation and respect and care. And then when they're you know, adults making decisions about what their company's choices are regarding materials and resources, they'll take that love and connection and respect for the natural world and, and make corporate level decisions that honor and respect the earth. Right, right. Or in their office of mayor or with their work at a hospital or whatever the, the decision that they're, they have in front of them in whatever field it is, they take the earth into consideration. Right, right. You know, there's there's a bigger story here that started with some really very simple acts. I listed you, Michelle, as a parent volunteer coming in, and it's really because that that was the role you began as. Now, certainly this has evolved into a much bigger uh, role for you to play in your community, although your title is probably still parent volunteer. <laughs> it's kind of exactly. like that one that we all wear when we're mothers. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really big one, but we never get a title change. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about the story of how this started. I, I have to give the, the audience a little bit of background. I was am lucky enough that I was also a parent volunteer at this school, not with, not with this particular program, although I got to see the fruits of the labors of many of the people that were part of this program. And my children attended the school for two years, really wonderful experience for our family. But watching, watching some of the um, efforts of parents come together and build these beautiful gardens that this school has, it was a remarkable, remarkably fast um, process. I don't think it felt fast when you were doing it, but go back and start at the beginning of the story for us and the Journey School and the gardens that they have. Oh, great. Well, Journey School is 12 years old. And Journey School was started by parents. Um, it's a it's a first parent-initiated public charter in uh, the Capistrano Unified School District. So the very essence of Journey was started by parents who recognized um, that they their hard work and volunteering and putting forth their vision is how to manifest. And today, 12 years later, the school is K through 8th, and they have 280 students. And so it's a Waldorf public charter school, and gardening is just an extension of that. So I'm one of many parents that have come along and um, are still present at Journey that are they're doing their part. Um, but my daughter started going to Journey five years ago, and I... 
helped out with the project when the school first moved to its new location. And we helped another, uh, several parents put in a native garden in the front of the school. And being a part of that um, was an amazing process and experience. And that was a, a, a time when um, parents recognized that if we could remove the grass from the front of the school and put in a native garden, we'd be saving water, and it would be a beautiful place to look at when you first come to your campus, and it's a living classroom for the students. So it was a multiple process. Tell us really quickly, pause for a moment, and tell us what a native garden is. Oh, fabulous. Well, a native garden, and Jody can really help us to elaborate on that, but my understanding of a native garden is a garden that utilizes native indigenous drought-tolerant plants that are to be grown in this area that the area ideally, of Southern California. Yeah, ideally can grow from the average rainfall that we have in Southern California. So, um, it, what, drought tolerant because where we have is just less rain than maybe some other areas. Our native garden would look very different, let's say, from a school in another part of the country, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to add that before the school was built, there were native plants growing in its place. So before the this property was first um, bulldozed and cleared to have buildings brought onto it and to have asphalt and to create it a school, it was all native habitat. There were oak trees and different native grasses and annual flowering plants. And It's also right by a riverbed. Yes, it's right yeah. right on the upper bank of Aliso Creek. So there's, there's currently willow and some beautiful riparian zone plants currently living in that zone next to the school. So so what the parent volunteers did was bring back the native ecosystems, which is bringing back the native pollinators and the birds and some of the small creatures that crawl on the ground like lizards, which the kids love to find the by the rocks. The lizards are amazing. So it's, it's bringing back this rich, tactile, full sensory experience to the school. And I can tell you from teaching in that garden, it offers so much joy. The ch- like we spoke about last week in uh, Wild Edibles, right. for instance, when we have our fourth graders come out to do Native American studies and survival skills, we go out to the oak tree that was planted by the parent volunteers, and we harvest acorns, and we h- crack the shells off with some rocks that they find nearby, and open them up and process them and make acorn pancakes, and then the kids get to eat the experience right from their own native garden so you made that then in the in the classroom you you harvested the acorns there and then you made that in the classroom the little pancakes we harvest them outside Mm -hmm. and process them outside with the stones and then yes brought in the the processed acorns and mixed them with some other delicious uh ingredients to make the pancakes so that the children would recognize the palate of the pancakes because acorn flour is very different than what we're used to. Oh, that's probably um, true. And then they have a, a wonderful kitchen at their school, mm-hmm. a small, it's a beautiful kitchen. fully functional kitchen. So we were able to cook them and, and enjoy them right there that day. Wow, that's remarkable. I, I think seem to remember a couple other edibles in the garden, or there is one that's medicinal in the garden. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? I remember my daughter, she participated in one of the Earth Roots Field School classes on campus and came home one day and was sharing about one of the plants. Nice. <laughs> that's awesome. So there's two medicinals that we use on campus to teach the children because they're both very easily recognizable once you have a basic understanding of leaf patterning. Mm. One of them is called plantain, mm. and 
This leaf, if you could imagine in your mind, a leaf that is elongated with a point on the tip, and the veins go from the stem all the way to the tip parallel. Oh, so some veins they branch out like the veins in our body, where there's a, a main ste- a main vein and then side veins coming off from that in different angles. But this one they go straight from the base to the tip, and there's usually like five or six veins that go up. Interesting. So that one, we go into the grass. It's a weed, and it gets mowed every time the grass gets mowed. So we go into the grass, and we find this this leaf, and we identify it, and we have the children either draw it on a piece of paper so they understand how to recognize it, or we t- actually tape it into a book so that they can take it home with them and write the name of it and what its useful um, properties are. And then we teach them how to grind it up and get the, the green juice from it, and we, we make pretend plantain bandages where they pretend they got a bee sting or a wasp sting and they put it on that site so that they can remember later that it's used to help um, reduce the swelling and reduce the itching and the sting. Very interesting. Yeah. And what is the other one? The other one is yarrow. And That's this one's one more of a fuzzy leaf. It's so soft and it, it has three dimensions. It's not flat like the plantain is. Uh, it's roundish and really fuzzy, long, and a softer sage color green. And the yarrow variety that grows on campus at the Journey School has white flowers. And this this plant, we teach the children how it's used to stop small, minor cuts. So if you have a scratch and you want to stop the bleeding, you can do the same thing where you mash up the leaf and put it on your pretend owie that we, we mm-hmm. talk about at school. And we put a piece of tape over it or some children use a piece of string to hold the leaf squished leaf in place to stop the pretend bleeding. <laughs> would this be something they could mash up in their mouth or would that yes. not be recommended? Yes, that's exactly what, what we do. Mm-hmm. For both of them. For both of them. Mm-hmm. The saliva helps to enzymatically activate, activate the, oh, the healing properties. Nice. Oh, so did Maddie teach you that? Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember all of this. That <laughs> oh, was the one awesome. where my husband goes, wait a second. <laughs> I'm the doctor in the house. <laughs> yes. So, so um, we'll have to get him, her her artwork hopefully that she still has it okay cool we still have her book that's awesome so that is wonderful can tell you about the green heart garden yeah that's that well can yeah if you continue on with the story um because what the native garden was 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 one of the first although there's the third grade garden which is just equally as as delicious to talk about too but the story the the story of the eco literacy program really starts with that green heart garden it does it does it does and that's really when um my Sort of my, I jumped in as a parent volunteer. It was with the Green Heart Garden, and um, the Green Heart Garden was launched because of a local company called Draft FCB. Um, they had a global giving day. They're based out of Irvine. They had a global giving day, and which they asked, means what? Well, they asked their cor- their co- corporate said they wanted all of the satellite offices to take a day off and volunteer their time at a local school and a local school garden, ideally, preferably. And Draft FCB, through that, found a Journey School. And they came to the school with volunteers, with some seed money. And um, and what that did for our school was pretty remarkable because it launched a, an entire new area of the campus that was formerly... A huge area. A huge area, you're right, that was formerly um, filled with a lot of asphalt, um, very clay and... and uh, soil that you wouldn't want to use as a garden or that you couldn't really you couldn't use. use as a garden yeah. and and with the help of Jody who created the initial plan for that garden we launched what we now call for the school a green heart garden 
And it was really that um, opportunity. And that was really an opportunity that many other parents helped to spearhead and champion other parents at the school. But it was from that that I recognized, and I say to Jody often, I caught a vision as a parent. I caught a vision you of the bug from somebody I got else, the bug. Maybe. I did. Yeah. I got the bug, the volunteer bug, and I got the vision of something that was bigger than if you will, just gardening at Journey School. And that's when um, kind of the light bulb went off that, wow, we could actually take this garden and and basically build on the Waldorf curriculum that's already there and utilizing the wonderful green partners like Jody and and have and we have a wonderful administrator on the school. All these pieces to the pie fit, and we could build an eco-curriculum into the main teaching in the classroom. And that was the start of that. And they do at that at that journey school. They do block style learning, so they would mm-hmm. could take out a, a chunk of time and focus on one particular area, and the children really get to delve into that area. It's not just a quick mention in the part of their day, but they really get to have a deep understanding of of what they're doing there. I I looked over the curriculum that you have for the eco-literacy. And let's talk about that, what that looks like through the grades. Um, So you take the children that are in the very early stages. What are the kinds of things that you share with them in the beginning of their educational cycle? Well, we were really careful in the beginning to make sure that what we were presenting aligned with the Waldorf education model and that it was also complementary with the a standard based education learning for that what's needed at a public school standard based meaning that we follow the California state content standards when we educate the children Absolutely. and that we meet their requirements um, which which every charter school does Absolutely. in a different way, but they still meet the standards. But they still meet the standards, absolutely. And so um, what we recognized when I said we, Jody and I, um, who I would say we partnered together on this vision and this possibility, um, very early on recognized that in the younger grades at Journey School, for example, in kindergarten and first grade, really the Waldorf education is already probably one of the oldest eco-literacy <laughs> programs around because it's well, already has a well, deep connection with nature. Um, But we began starting the eco-literacy curriculum spiral in second grade, and that was the start of uh, a program called 10 Weeks of Life Cycles in the Garden. And that's the life cycle of the bee, the butterfly, the worm, and the seed. And that was the beginning, and we did a 10-week program um, in the second grade. So you discuss the life cycle. Tell me about the 10 again, the 10... Refers to it's a ten weeks uh, program, okay. and it's a life cycle of the bee, the butterfly, the worm, and the seed. Okay, and so okay. it's a ten week program. You want to tell me? Yeah. More? So basically, I would I would show up in the classroom and introduce to the children each week a different topic based on those themes. So let's say we're starting with the seed. We'd talk about the miracle of a seed, how it transforms into different life cycles. Um, and what the basic needs are to grow a seed. And we use song and art and hands-on activities outside in the garden so that the children experience, you know, what happens if I put water on this tiny little brown thing <laughs> and put it in some soil? And they actually each, each day come out and water and watch it and talk about what they see and make notes. And 
measure how high it grows after a certain amount of time. Right. And at the end of the 10-week session, have a carrot to eat. Or have a tomato to eat, depending on the season. And and then s- stepping into the, the next block of um, the worm, for instance, we did a whole session on worm composting. So the children were able to take their wastes from the garden, the green clippings or their scraps from their snacks, anything that was a vegetable or fruit, and bring it into this worm box that we have on campus. Mm. And we explored it the first day to see what was in it, and we found small worm eggs and baby white worms and then the adult red wigglers and we counted how many we found of each and the children got to hold them in their hands and really get inquisitive about what it was that they were holding and see little pieces of avocado skin still undigested and explore what happens when you put an apple core into this box that has worms in it at all different life cycles and each week come back out to see how it changes and transforms. So then the next year at the school, when they're on into third grade, they're building on that knowledge. Give me an example of how they build on that in third grade. Well, what's wonderful about third grade is in the Waller curriculum, gardening, uh, farming and gardening is is already established. But what we've done with Jody um, at Journey School, um, instead of, so what's nice about what Jody's doing for Journey School is that instead of relying on the main teacher to teach all of the this information we're sharing today, we have Jody that can come in with her wonderful knowledge and can teach. And that's exactly what happened for third grade. So already built into the curriculum is the, this is the year of farming. And yes, the third graders at Journey have their own garden and they're learning about soil and they're learning about as you make a continuation of composting and harvesting and they're tying that into their curriculum. But Jody was able to come in and teach for 22 weeks this week, oh, wow. this year uh, um, in that garden class and take it way deeper for our school. Mm-hmm. I want to share a little bit about what we're going to do tomorrow, a sneak preview for any of the kids who are out there listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this third grade garden has some plants that were established a long time ago and then annual plants that we grow every year together straight from seed. And the lavender plant that was planted a few years ago by the third grade class then is in full bloom right now. And so we love going to the lavender plant and wow. smelling and harvesting. And earlier in the year, we harvested uh, the first batch of flowers that came up and we soaked them in oil and made an infusion so that uh, the children were able to see how the oils from the lavender can come out into the the oil base that we bought from the store mm-hmm. and create a, a massage oil. Oh, nice. Or a, I seem to remember getting my infusion <laughs> from uh, when my daughter took the class. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's Very awesome. Nice. And we talk about how different Just plants... Just in time for Mother's Day? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, we actually did it a little early this year, so we'll have to remember that for next year. Um, but how the, the relaxing effects of lavender can be used to help us and that that we're allies together and how they can rub a little bit of lavender oil on their temples to relax or to put in their bath before bedtime. And the children were able to to pour that off at the end of the two-week soak into little jars to take home. And this year there's – and we talked about value-added products for farmers and how, you know, farmers need to really expand their crop so that if they put all their energy into the strawberries and the strawberries fail, they'll have a backup crop that they can use for earning – what they need to survive. So we talked about lavenders in this situation as a value-added product. And we're going to come back to that plant again because it's so abundant in flowers right now. 
and cut the flowers and bundle them to dry so that the children can have um, dried lavender flowers to make little sachets, um, either eye pillows later or some project that they can use of their teacher's creation to sew or to hang up or to bring home or to give as gifts for Mother's Day or whatever it may be. And and really give the children and their teachers some creative decision making, but but with a product that we see in the garden that needs to be harvested and that can be put to good use. Right, right. So it says under the third grade that um, along with the focus of farming, cooking, and building, they'll learn about soil um, soil building, worm composting, gardening, harvesting, and recycling. Um, tell me what is what is soil building? I'd love to answer that one. Mm-hmm. So. Soil is this rich habitat that holds a lot of biodiversity, many different creatures, microorganisms, and then up into the bigger things that we can see, like the worms, and then even bigger than that, squirrels. And for soil to be hosting healthy plants, you need to have healthy soil with rich biodiversity. And building soil is something that needs to be done actively in order in a garden sense, to have the healthy plants. So farmers who want to go the ecological route versus the conventional chemical route need to put a lot of energy and attention into the soil. So what we do is we we gather the composts. Um, at this school, we have the gardens in raised boxes, so our soil building's different than it would be if it was in rows in the ground. And because we, you're not competing with every element, an environmental element that, that surrounds the soil that you're using. You have a little bit more of a closed system we in have your a, garden boxes? We have a, a raised bed that has wooden walls, so it's detached a bit from the ground where, and it's protected from gophers with, um, with screening. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's raised off the ground. So we have to use water differently than if it was in the ground. And the soil building practices are slightly different, although layering is the same as it would be in the ground. So, for instance, we'll take different layers of um, manures and um, straw or leaves and green things like cut grass and put them into layers and then let the time and the decomposition process work its magic Mm -hmm. so that when the seeds are planted and the young sprouts start to grow their roots, they're tapping into decomposed, nutritious alive soil Mm. that can grow healthy food. And I can speak to the fact that I have a third grader who's in third grade right now. And I can say that Ella's learning all of this about farming and has had the the great experience of working with Jody over the years also. But Ella comes home and she wants to be out in our garden now. And she, she, the other day she was in playing in the garden and she was just, I love soil, mom. I love soil. So her relationship with soil (laughs) is so, yay, Jody. Yeah, it's exactly what you want. It's exactly what you want. And I know that um, uh, um, Ella's teacher, Mrs. Smith, um, shared that the children really understand that the relationship with the soil is so important to how well the seed 
than performs and mm. than the food. Right. So they're recognizing they're that. They're seeing, they're making right. the connections. It's not just dirt that we walk on. It's soil yeah. that we love and we build we and we it. create and we protect it. Mm. And in that relationship right there, we talked about children having this connection to nature. To start that early, I mean, that's remarkable. Their relationship changes with food in the grocery store and what they eat. And so that's, I mean, that's just one amazing piece that I see in my own daughter. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, oh, I, I miss soil right now. I live in an apartment complex where we have gardeners, <laughs> and I grew up in a house in a pretty big lot in, in Westminster, at least maybe half an acre. It was a, oh. one of those 50s houses that oh, had nice. a lot of lawn, you know, a lot of yard to maintain. And so we grew things and, you know, planted trees because it was a total fixer-upper house. And uh, I don't have that relationship with soil anymore because I don't mm-hmm. plant anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just that's one of the drawbacks, I think, to apartment living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I just I, I, didn't, the disconnection. I didn't realize how much I missed it mm-hmm. until, you know, like maybe like four years ago. And I'm like, I really miss doing that stuff. Yeah. So um, it, was part of, it was part of who you were. Yeah, it was part of who I was. So. And so for Heather, that's a fabulous. You have that experience of having a connection to soil. But there are some children in suburbia and growing up in suburbia that have never. honestly have never had mm. truly that connection. They didn't make mud they pies. Get, they, yeah, or, yeah. or if they just made mud pies, but they didn't connect that the the soil is actually this this um this connection that we all have in it's need. a give back it's, really it's a give back and mm. so that's one of the other beautiful gifts that we're seeing yeah oh, that's neat so okay that takes us to third grade fourth grade was where I got to experience the school and the curriculum so tell me a little bit about fourth grade they um, it says the students learn about Native American culture ancestral survival skills. And they learn how to identify and use the native edibles. We talked a little bit about that. Medicinal plants, tool making, creek bed walks. Um, they learn to use fire tools and bow and arrow making. And the fourth grade um, adopts the native garden as their living classroom. So, Boy, that the fourth grade curriculum is amazing. It really is amazing. That's a that was something we built on this year from last year's eco literacy program and it was a it's a it was a ten week program this year and it truly was not long enough. The children loved it. The students loved it. Um, and it exactly what you talked about, but Jody uh, and she can share about that. She taught the children how to make natural tools. So the bow and arrow and the fire making and um, to be able to identify plants and to be able to go in and and do some cooking. And and, I mean, they loved, loved this class. And it's something that they're able to build on. Did you teach my children how to make fire? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not your children. So this this year was the first time in history that I've ever experienced a a public school allowing us to make fire on campus and actually bring in the, you know, coated fire ring with the lid on it and be in a safe place on the back of campus and, and bring the tools out and let the kids go for it and really start to finish, carve the tools, you know, go to the riparian zone nearby and look at the plant mule fat where we harvest the um the plant and dry it out and, and carve the tools so that they're the right shape so that when you rub them together, you can create a coal. And we did this whole process with the children over a few weeks. And on the last day, we, we built a fire together. And there was a great sense of accomplishment by the children because they felt the, you know, it's challenging to make a fire and we take it for granted these days, but to really have to have to know the plant that you need to harvest and wait for the wood to dry and carve it with a rock and 
and use your energy and build up a sweat to rub the sticks together. And then if you blow on it and you have all your materials right and, and you do get it lit, then wow, what a successful experience that was. And the, and the children did get it. And when they were working on their own with the tools, they got heat and they got some coal dust built up. And, and there's potential for them now to practice this skill that might take a while to learn efficiently. But they have it. They have it in their sensory memory now. That's a, that's amazing, yeah. And what a gift to give a survival skill like that. That's 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 a significant one to yes. carry through your life. I don't know too many times where it's impacted me, but I think I think I could I could see how easily it could happen where we could all sort of fall out of our safety net life that we live and um, find ourselves with the need to do something just like that. And to lose those skills as the generations move on would be such a tragedy. So that speaks a hundred percent to why on multiple occasions when when Dr. Meg, the teacher who I co teach this class with, we walk into the room the next week after having an, a, a huge aha moment of experience with the children, they would actually applause when we walked into the room. And it wasn't because we're doing something special, but because we're giving them the confidence to know these skills and to know these mm. tools and to know how to take care of themselves if they need to. And, and I think they, they are fully aware in some way that that's necessary. As to be a human being, we need to know how to take care of ourselves. Absolutely. And that you let them make fire in a responsible way. And mm-hmm. um, now they know how to, you know, they won't experience with it as as a flagrant toy, but as a, like you said, a necessary survive, necessary to their human survival. Yes. And we definitely go over the safety of fire because that's not something to be light with. Having fire is as a tool, it needs to be respected and used as a tool and not as something that can just happen here and there, you know. So, okay. So the curriculum in the Waldorf setting changes a little bit after fourth grade Mm -hmm. as it goes into fifth grade. And it shifts their focus from an emphasis on just observation and wonder, discovery and reverence to observation, and moves more towards actually doing, um, the capacity to move between a variety of mediums and expressing knowledge and of what has been discovered. So tell me a little bit about that shift And going into the fifth grade, it looks like they're doing um, watershed. Uh, Is is it a watershed or water, just water, like learning about water Mm -hmm. shedding from the planet? I don't know. You'll have to tell me about that. Water conservation and rainwater harvesting. Absolutely. Um, Kimberly, what you're talking about in in the Waldorf education, they really uh, recognize that when a child um, actually does step into fifth grade, there's, in a sense, more of a maturity and and then with, and and it responds with the curriculum. And so we really tried to match that with our um, eco-literacy curriculum model and recognize that also going along with the state standards curriculum, the rainwater harvesting or the watershed, learning about their local watershed, and then where um, Jody and I came up with was rainwater harvesting as a class that they could learn about how to capture rainwater. Um, what's the average rainfall in our um, in our community of Elisa Viejo? And they actually learned. They measured the roof of their building. They recognized how much the average rainfall would be in Elisa Viejo. And if they were to just capture rainfall on that one roof, how much would they capture? And how could they creatively reuse that water? And this was an amazing process that they were a part of last year. And again, this year, that then led into a much bigger picture of... Um, 
of what we're doing at Journey School. And you, ha- well, I'll let you chime in on that, Jody. But you also have a success story you can share with us about a couple of the students that have really embraced this type of a project. So go ahead, and Jody, tell us a little bit about rainwater harvesting. I just want the listeners to know that this classroom where the fifth graders sit, there are thirty-three about fifth graders in this classroom. Twenty-six. Thank you, Michelle. So there's desks for 26 children and a desk for the teacher and some space by the door. It's, an, I would say, an average-sized classroom. And the, the amount of rainwater that falls in Aliso Viejo is 12 inches per year as an annual average. The, um, the gal- number of gallons of water that fall onto that school classroom roof is over 8,000 gallons a year. Wow. And if you think about your average school... This one has, I don't know how many buildings. Let's just say 16, 15. It's about 10, yeah. Oh, maybe, yeah, okay. 15. And then con- consider the office buildings and the bathroom, and all right. of these buildings have rooftops. And if you multiply that, you can imagine the huge volume of water that there is to be used for the gardens or, or anything. anything. Yeah. Washing clothes, washing tools, washing hands. Um, and then thinking about the asphalt water. What falls on the asphalt and where does that go and how can that be reworked into an efficient, useful place rather than going down the drains and straight out to the ocean? So that's what we talk about in the rainwater harvesting component of the fifth grade um, session as a part of the larger watershed that we all live in, which includes the roads and the hills and the mountains and the, the rooftops of their house and every place that water falls that directs down All those the places ocean. that they can capture it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County, and I have in the studio with me uh, Jody Levine with Earth Roots, a field school that teaches children a connection to nature, and Michelle Speaker, who is a parent volunteer at the Journey School. It's a local public charter school in Aliso Viejo, and they are telling us today about an eco-literacy program that they have spearheaded and hope to share with um, with the district. There seems to be some interest um, for a wider appeal on this program. So we're taking it um, grade by grade and really looking at what the children are learning. Um, so t- take, take me, Michelle, if you would, to some of the student stories that have come out of this experience. Oh, gosh. That's, that's really, I have to say, that's when, that's the beauty of this. You know, when you get to see the students um, light up. You know, we, we're talking about what happens in second grade when they're actually, they plant a seed and then they see it grow and then they have a salad, they have a lunch. And then you see the third grade with the farming and they build their tool shed and, and, and they cook, they take it, they go from farm to fork. They actually cook what they've grown and they learn about that. In the fourth grade, it's the native skills, fifth grade with rainwater harvesting, sixth grade, we do composting and second, seventh grade, which is a, a permaculture a six-week course that Jody has uh, designed and de- developed with the seventh graders. And then in eighth grade, we go into this eco-leadership. And honestly, the students take this and run with it. And pr- is it an opportunity to share about what oh, Serena said? Oh, please. Yeah, I would love that. So um, I think Jody, I-, I think, can expand on this beautifully. But one of our eighth grade students, Serene Adams, who's 13 years old, uh, and this is her last year at Journey School, eighth grade. She'll be going on to high school next year. As part of the Waldorf curriculum, they um, all of the eighth graders pick a, a project, a, a, a project, and that project needs to be something they're passionate about. They want to do some deep learning and education about. Then they actually do a hands-on, and then they share 
what they've learned with their Waldorf community or with their, their school community. And Serene Adams selected rainwater harvesting as her eighth grade project this year. And That's her wonderful. mentor is Jody uh, of Earthroots. And um, what a beautiful partnership, Jody. I just have to say between Serene, who's this amazing 13-year-old who um, who took rainwater harvesting and and deeply learned about it, deeply learned about it, and then designed, uh, created, designed, and uh, uh, um, orchestrated an impl- implementation of a demonstration site on campus, on a public school campus, with the help, extra- extraordinary help of Jody. And this particular demonstration site, this is eco leadership at its finest. This is a 13-year-old student teaching all of us parents and, and visitors to the school and other students about rainwater harvesting, about a unique way to rain, save rainwater and reuse it in a, in a beautiful way. So, now, what I want to point out to the listeners and to anybody that thinks about possibly spearheading a program like this in their schools. This all started with just one simple little parent volunteer that took a baton, took an idea, and and grew it into a bigger vision for a school. But not only that, for anybody that wants to take part in something like this, you can reach out, get in touch with Michelle through the Journey School. They are located on the web at www.journeyschool.net, and you can you can tap into many of the lessons that they have learned. In addition to that, um, the reason I, I paused what Michelle was saying is I want the listeners to understand how much space we're talking about. I think it can sound a little bit intimidating when you talk about a huge garden or a native garden or a rainwater harvesting project. The amount of space that this rainwater harvesting project took up on campus is about the same size as the studio we're sitting in. It is a very small space, um, you know, maybe like a 10 by 10 room space, maybe, would you say, Heather? Yeah, something like that, it's, 10 to it's, 12. It's nothing significant in terms of um, taking up your space. This space originally occupied a drinking fountain that's just probably still there, and um, very small space to do a project like that. Tell us a little bit about how it took form on campus. You know, I'd, I'd love to let Jody tell about that. It'd be great. I'd be happy to. Uh, so Serene came to me one day and said, or I think it was a phone call. Um, I got your number, and I was wondering if you could be my mentor for my eighth grade project. What a great feeling that call oh. must have been. <laughs> and for me, it was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, another, another thing to another do. Another thing to put on my list. And I was like, well, tell me what it means to be a, a mentor for your eighth grade project. Well, we'll meet, you know, once a week or once every other week, and I'll, I'll ask questions about how to do something, and I want, I want to do it about rainwater harvesting. And as soon as she said rainwater harvesting, I was like, my heart melted, and I said, of course I'll be your mentor. You were there. Well, oh, Rainwater yeah. Harvesting Journey School had, while we were there, a lecture by Brad Lancaster. And I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised because my son came home so lit up after that lecture. <laughs> I think he was one of the little kids shaking in the front seat trying to get up on stage <laughs> to touch Brad. But, <laughs> but, um, Brad, but was Brad that, that was that, was that the inspiration for yes, her, do you think? Definitely. She's, she's mentioned that to me. And, and once she learned, the concept and she was able to really identify that her campus also had roofs and also had open soil spaces next to the roofs that they could do the same kind of work she just wanted to to make that change happen on campus and, and that concept that no space should not be considered or I'm sorry let me not do double negatives every space should be considered yes. as a possible place to do something like yes. that yes yes and 
and Brad is an incredible teacher. He teaches all over the world in dry deserts and in moist areas and he makes it sound so easy, which it really is. It's these basic techniques and, and he is no the, rocket science. Yeah, he's the author of Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, yes. if anybody wants more information. And an inspiration to, to me and my peers and as well as the students. So Serene got this idea, and she asked me to help her out, and we worked with Michelle and with the administration, and Michelle strongly encouraged. We used the front of campus, which to me was a little intimidating, but the very front of campus as the site to do it, and Serene was all excited about that, and and... The process was fairly easy to get permission for everything to happen because the school is in such support of greening the campus and interweaving the education to the outdoor gardens. So once that happened, Serene and I came up with a list of questions we needed answered, like how much volume do we need in our mulch basin where the water is going to come down into off of the roof? And you know how, how are we going to measure this? this capacity and we she actually had to climb up on the roof and check out the drains to see where the roof collected water and which downspouts went to where and um, measure the length and width of the buildings and from that determine the volume based on the annual rainfall and go down to for a field trip to the local native nursery and ask them which kinds of plants would do well in this school site and with this amount of water coming out and then work with partners from the school who had businesses that do landscape to ask for donations and to go to Home Depot and ask for a donation and really weave everything together. And Michelle put the call out for volunteers and got students from Soka University and the Environmental Studies Department to come out. It was just really beautiful, almost seamless coming together when we look back on it. Even when we had a a pipe, um, you know, in the day of digging this huge pit, get bent a little bit with one of the shovels and we asked the a couple friends like what do we do about this pipe and got some reflection that it'd be best to repair it and Michelle made a call and the next morning 8 a.m. there was a plumber there fixing the pipe you know it was wow. everything that needed to happen happened seamlessly it was really beautiful coming together of community so this is something that will continue to serve a purpose on campus yes Every day people are learning about rainwater harvesting every time they pass by that site. And then when when it rains, will they get to then see how it functions? Uh, As long as everything's working well, they will not notice much at all. Mm, That's Uh, interesting. The the mulch basin is basically dug this really hard clay out of the site so that there was this hole. And we filled it with mulch, which is fibrous and holds moisture very well. Mm. And the downspouts from the roof exit underground into this mulch basin Mm -hmm. so when it rains the mulch absorbs the water the plants the native plants that serene picked out are planted around the mulch basin and absorb the water that comes out from the roof and they grow so what we'll notice over time is that the plants will grow well the the moisture will seep into the soil around the mulch basin so the plants even on the periphery will begin to grow with more vigor and health than before the garden was there. And I was just, oh, I was just wondering also is like, um, how much like it, what you had there in, during in the plant area that was all grass at one point, right? At one point it was all grass. Was but I'm gonna let Michelle the, answer that question while. because she's watched that garden transform over the years more than I have. Mm-hmm. So Heather, your question is, is the yeah area, that was grass. Yeah. So I was just wondering yeah. like um, how much how many gallons of water you're saving by not watering that grass mm-hmm. with you know, just rain recapturing and then having that feed the garden's needs. Okay, I'm going to have Jody answer that. <laughs> <laughs> the question changes. The mic back and forth. It's hilarious. <laughs> so that rooftop 
gathers over 8,000 gallons of water a year. And it's being right now funneled down through two downspouts into a mulch basin that's about 12 by 10. If okay. you're going to look at the volume capacity and it's about a foot and a half deep. And so we're not irrigating that. We took out the irrigation from that site. Okay. And I don't know how much irrigation was coming in before, but we no longer are using any water on a, on a daily basis in that area. Yeah, I, I, the, the important point I brought up is like, I, I, especially in hot places like Arizona, I had a friend that had a natural garden in their front lawn, and everybody else has this green grass in Arizona, and you don't know how much water we're wasting that Isn't can be that used sad? to yeah. other places than just like watering your lawn. Yeah. So. Yeah. I have something to say about that that I learned from our friend Brad Lancaster, the inspiration for this all. He lives in Tucson, Arizona, and he's revolutionized his neighborhood wow. to go from irrigated semi-ugly-looking place to a vibrant food forest that's only irrigated by rainwater. And he has taught us that the amount of rain that falls from the sky and lands on the city of Tucson, if captured and used properly and efficiently, would meet all the needs of every single person and business that live in Tucson. And I would... I would guess that the same is true for Orange County. We have similar rainfall pattern um, amounts. We don't have the monsoon season. We though. don't have the monsoon <laughs> season. We have more people, I think. I'm not sure. I'm pretty we'll sure we do. I'm pretty sure we do too. <laughs> but needless to say, if we did this, if we did that here in Orange County, we would significantly reduce the amount of water that's piped in from the Colorado River and from Northern California, which is depleting watersheds from way outside of our reach if you look at it in that in that way and would make our whole region more self-sufficient and more sustainable and more healthy and more green and more community interaction and more joy and more animals coming to feed yeah. on the plants so and Jody, i want to say something on that you know we have talked about rainwater harvesting at journey school for a while and um what happened is that it wasn't until a student it really wasn't until a student actually took the initiative and did this that you really began to impart great change. So we could talk about, gosh, it'd be great to put rainwater all over Orange County. But I have to say that when a 13-year-old student came to the administration and to the school and to the area with an idea and a passion it, and a passion mm -hmm. and it was matched with the very excited volunteers and, and people that make that happen that's when a lot of attention turned to it and people started to say on campus i could do this at home <laughs> i mean i know how I, I didn't know it was this i could do this and that is the change we're talking about that excites us so much at journey oh, it is just so exciting i still don't know how we managed to come up with a whole hour where we just non stop talking and didn't get anywhere near all of the topics that I wanted to discuss with you ladies. <laughs> this has happened to us now twice, Jody. We've got to stop meeting this way or, or we need to continue meeting this way. Maybe that's the, the bigger question. But I... I hope that I hope that the listening audience has had a chance to spark an interest as as I certainly have with these two lovely ladies. That's really what I wanted to do this show, The Real People of Orange County, for is so that I could bring to you some pretty wonderful people in your community that you could reach out to as resources and and become further educated if you are interested in this area of eco-literacy. Today we had Jody Levine and Michelle Speaker. Mm -hmm. You can get in touch with them through journeyschool.net or you can get in touch with Jody directly at Earthroots um, 
earth-roots. So you want to say the website again so I get it right? Sure. It's earth-roots.org. .org. That's right. And certainly um, Jody and all of her efforts would be well worth any time that you would want to put to it. Um, wonderful opportunities there. We are coming to a close and I want to remind everybody that April 22nd is Earth Day. Um, what, Ladies, what are you doing for Earth Day? Anything you can quickly tell us? We have about a minute left. Well, I'm, I'm kind of overcommitted. I have four Earth Day events that I'm going to this weekend. The first one will be at the Journey School in Aliso Viejo on Saturday. Um, it runs all day. Um, the second and third that I'm going to are both in Laguna Beach Kelp Fest. Wonderful. Uh, which is themed all around the ocean. And then the Laguna Beach Earth Day that's hosted by Transition Laguna Beach. And then on Sunday, I'll be going to Earth Day Ponje, which is in San Clemente, and it's the local Native American celebration. And they're all beautiful opportunities to connect with other people and community around honoring the earth and each other. So I highly recommend getting out there and having some fun. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, well, you want to tell me what oh, you're going to do Oh, yes. Well, so I'll be at Journey School on Saturday. Absolutely. There's an Earth Day event. And, and um and then on Sunday, we're just going to be doing some gardening nice. <laughs> and spending time in nature. Touching touching the dirt, I yes. hope. <laughs> Indeed. Ladies, thank you so much for your time today. I was just... I'm truly feel honored that you would be here and spend this much time with me. I want to tell you so much, Kimberly. Yeah, oh, Kimberly, you're, you're thank you. You're so welcome. I want to tell the listeners about next week. We're going to have Terry O'Neill in the studio. He's the president of the American SPCC, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. In addition to April being um, a, a very eco, eco-focused eco month, April is also the National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and their charter brings awareness and education to the forefront about this really, really difficult topic that continues to sweep be swept under the carpet in our country so we will be talking to terry about that heather hopefully you'll be back here joining me yeah i'll probably be back here so okay well thank you very much for joining uh, kimberly martin's real people of orange county if you want any more information you can go to my website realpeopleoc.com thank you very much